Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and John Cryer, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime drama and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. You can see upcoming episodes by going to our website, lawandorderpodcast.com. Today, we'll be looking at Law & Order Prime, Season 1, Episodes 15 and 16, The Torrents of Greed, Parts 1 and 2. Now, joining me to do that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, my better half, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. And rounding out the panel is our very special guest from Two and a Half Men, Pretty in Pink, and the Undisclosed Addendum Podcast, Triple Threat, John Cryer. Oh. <laughs> I thought we lost him for a second. Bum, bum. Da, da, da. And musical theater I also theater love the genius. breakdown. I love, I love the, the, uh, the, <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> By the way, Rebecca, that your hello to Kevin, I think you should go back and listen to that again because this is the most loaded hello, Kevin, <laughs> I have ever heard. I don't know what was going on before She's the so podcast, mad about the laundry. <laughs> true fact 100 percent true it's, it's adorable you know you're riffing there but like we're looking at an episode of season one which of course is way way back you called it prime i, I would say this is like the book of genesis law and order that you're talking about it's like it barely holds up i feel like i should have been watching it like in an old-time movie theater with an organ player well there are so many things and we'll talk about them but so many things about season one that are different from the law and order we've come to know and love and chun you were talking about the theme song well, oh my gosh, the opening theme song, it luxuriates in itself. It is, it, it, it just goes on and on, and it has these wonderful photo montage of, you know, New York crime sort of moments, you know, <laughs> and uh, and it just, you know, it's the law, and it's the, the cops, and then it's order, and it's the, you know, it's the DAs and such, but it, it goes in, in incredible depth. You know, it's a 14-hour miniseries of photos. It was all this valuable <laughs> network time that got wasted. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. They could have been showing commercials at that time. I think eventually they did. <laughs> yes. What really stuck out to me was the guitar riffing part of the theme song in this very, very old episode of Law & Order. Like, they're plucking the strings it was like, really hard. They plucked yeah. the hell out of it. Like a person with long-ass fingernails. Was like, bear, bear, bear. <laughs> it was really, I would, I would really recommend to our listeners who might have to go back and get this from Amazon or whatever, like, 
you really need to pay attention to the, the, the craziness of the theme song. John, yes. you have a recurring role on NCIS, which is a, a TV procedural. It sounds like that you have sort of an open invitation to guest on SVU if you want. No, I wouldn't put it that way. The thing was that the guy, uh, Warren Light, who has produced uh, SVU for the last few years, uh, used to be my babysitter. <laughs> uh, I, I swear to God. Rebecca just spit uh, something out of her mouth. <laughs> he, uh, I swear, he used to live a few floor, floors up, and that wonderful play that he wrote was about his whole family, uh, Sidemen, that he wrote. Um, and they were all a few floors upstairs from us. All that craziness was happening right up there. So we had a certain connection. Um, however, he is no longer on the show, so I, I, I wouldn't assume that <laughs> yeah, uh, but... <laughs> I am always welcome on this foo. But it sounds like, you know, at Law & Order, like the casting agent there is like the guy at Playboy who would call celebrities and want to know if they want to pose each month. It just seemed like... <laughs> It was a hit list, and so we got to get everybody. Yeah, sooner or later, we're going to be on long enough that we will have gotten everybody. And then you could be in one of those themed marathons on USA. Like last week, they had the uh, sitcom stars marathon. It was riveting. It was Haley from Modern Family was on one, and then Haley's mom, uh, Julie Bowen, was on the next one. And it was really, really (laughs) incredible. And and John could be on one of those if he's ever on this. John, you rarely get to play the bad guy, it seems. Do you you think it would be fun to do it? Because on SVU, you obviously you'd be a rapist or a killer or something. I yes. mean, you know, I w- you wouldn't just be embezzling. You would be doing they, something really bad. They had talked to me about uh, being a Ted Bundy style <laughs> serial killer, which sounds like fun. Sure, uh, <laughs> um, but they kept emphasizing how handsome the guy had to be, <laughs> and, oh. which I was never comfortable with. Um, that being said, yeah, I would, I would love to. Uh, you know, I was just talking with Jim Clemente last week. Name uh, dropper, uh, go ahead, but keep name going. Name dropper, yeah, keep I just going. That's, how, that's how I roll. <laughs> Welcome to Hollywood. Um, and, uh, you know, he was saying uh, they need uh, serial killers on uh, criminal uh, criminal minds. Thank you. We Jesus. Need, we need serial I, killers on I, criminal I, minds. I, Quick, I, I, round up some serial a, killers. Send out a memo. That's <laughs> right. some, some serial killers. Uh, so I'm sure at some point I'll be doing that. And you guys will be laughing your asses off. Oh, I can't wait. I know. I might be scared. I might actually yeah. end up watching really a show intense. I don't watch to see that. Yeah. One time that I was really blown away was on Homicide Life on the Streets. The guy, the guy who played Steve on Blue. Blues Clues, oh, yeah. played a killer, yep. and you know he was like really intense. And there were all these moms that were angry that Steve from Blues Clues was a killer. It was like, put your kid to bed at 10 o'clock, for Christ's sake. <laughs> He's just Although, an actor. Yes, but he was, by the way, fantastic on Blues Clues. Yes. Uh, uh, as an actor, you understand, Blue is not really there. Right. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Side table doesn't really talk. There's not really a side table anywhere. Um, he's he's interacting with things that don't exist. That's right. He's amazing. You sound like a dad, of course. I am a, a devout dad and um, and devout fan of Blues Clues yeah, as you well. Got, you got two kids and um, you've got a, a lovely wife and you've started this business called Discount Sushi, which is not a restaurant. <laughs> Thank God. But it's your production <laughs> company, right? Yes, yes. When Two and a Half Men was over, Warner Brothers uh, asked if I wanted to stay on and produce TV for them. And... Uh, we were clearly hard pressed for a name for our company. Oh, I think it's a great name. Now, th- this is you know one of the biggest ensemble. I mean, it's actually, it's been on multiple franchises that are these ensembles. And John, you know better than most that a major cast change can sink a successful series if not handled right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what what do you think That's it a, is? You got to say trigger warning. Dude. Yeah, trigger <laughs> warning. Sorry. Say something like that. 
because uh, I cannot handle that. Go, go to your happy place. Okay. Go to your happy place. <laughs> Show us on the doll where the bad actor touched you. Um, so, Ouch. but what, John, what do you think it is about Law & Order that it went on for 20 years and SVU is going on its 18th year with so many moving parts and they're still able to deliver the goods? Why is that? Fantastic formula. The original, the mothership Law & Order was a beautiful creation of a formula. They set it up. You know, you get the police working it out and then you segue into the, the the attorneys and the DAs and all that stuff. But he always knew where there was going to be the twists. It's a triumph of formula over specific performances. But that being said, so many terrific performances. So who is your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. My favorite DA pairing was Michael Moriarty. And Jill Hennessy. That would be Ben and Claire. Wow. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. And they Good only combo. lasted one season. They only lasted one season, but the erotic heat was palpable. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I have to say Moriarty was always my favorite DA. I love Sam Waterston. Love him, love him, love him. But Moriarty will, you know, he actually is a remarkably subtle actor and manages, you know, when you're dealing with a show that is a triumph of formula, he manages to imbue everything with a reality and and character that is remarkable. You know, a lot of the time when you're doing procedurals, you're you're just laying pipe. You know, as an actor, you got to get a certain amount of information out in a scene. And that's just that. That's, you know, it, these things are built like a machine and they don't function if something is missing. And so you don't get to have fun with it like you would with something that was a lot looser. But what I, I admired about Michael Moriarty was that he could still make it really interesting even when he's just laying pipe. And that's that's uh, incredible. Who is your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. Oh, my favorite detective team is I'm going to go old school Briscoe Logan. They had a, they had a longer run. See, as I said, Moriarty and uh, Hennessy only had one season when they were together. Mm-hmm. And then it was Sam Waterston. And I, you know, and I just bought out emotionally. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. I still, I still love it. So you, so you don't think that uh, Ben Stone is a goody goody? Uh, I, I liked that he was a goody goody. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm a goody goody. <laughs> what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm Rebecca? not saying anything. I'm just, I just want us posing a question. That's I'm posing a uh, very Jack-like question rather than a Ben Stone-like question. He would never ask that question. <laughs> so, but now, okay. So I, I sense a certain disdain in the way that you said that. No, I think that um, Ben Stone. I love Ben Stone. I love Michael Moriarty in this show. His optimism for me. I don't know, a little bit much. Sickened by it. <laughs> sickened by it. Especially, you are a cynic. Yeah. And you are a little bit a deeply angry woman, and that's fine. A little bit. <laughs> I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about something I'm going to be doing. It's called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. I'm going to go on a walkathon, but I'm going to be wearing high heel shoes. And yes, it's going to look as bad as you probably think it will. But this is a fundraiser for a crisis center near our home. And I want to do it because not only is it a good way to raise money for people who need it right now, but it is a time for me and other men to reflect about walking a mile in a woman's shoes. Now, even though one in four men will become a victim of emotional or sexual or domestic violence in their lifetime, men don't live with the specter 
of domestic violence the same way women do. A lot of times women don't have the same kind of options for getting help, getting out of a bad situation. So not only would I like you all to think a little bit about that, if you can, donate a little bit to my walkathon. Just go to lawandorderpodcast.com. There's a link. Just a couple of bucks would be great. It will help victims living near Rebecca and I. If you can't do that, pick some place close to you and lend a hand any way that you can. Again, if you want to donate a little something to my walk a mile in her shoes, just go to lawandorderpodcast.com. It was a, a trip back in time to watch that episode. First of all, well, it, it shouldn't have been given the number of Donald Trump references. <laughs> no That's kidding. true. Why don't uh, we get into looking at that? This is the first part of our two-part episode, The Torrents of Greed. Here's the summary. We first see Gritty, 1990 New York City, and two cops waiting to buy lotto tickets from their favorite shop owner. The jackpot is $28 million, which is exactly the amount John Cryer got paid for playing Lenny in Superman 4. (laughs) Coincidence? I think not. The shop owner is beat up, and Grievy and Logan uncover a bootleg cigarette ring, which leads to the brother-in-law of a mob boss and eventually to the Don himself, Frank Masucci. In addition to his racketeering, Masucci is suspected of making a union boss take an extra long lunch break, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And this is the part where I put my finger on my nose and bend it for some reason. (laughs) Despite having a solid case against the underlings, Stone makes deals with these low-level mobsters to nail the Don, but surprisingly, these organized crime figures cannot be trusted. (laughs) They they set up Stone and intentionally get caught lying on the stand, thus torpedoing the state's case, and everybody goes free. But Stone swears he'll get Masucci. Oh, yes, he will get Masucci. (laughs) Now, it strikes me as, like, about this is that how conspicuously dirty New York is. There's graffiti on the walls, and you see the morning's garbage bags on the sidewalk. Are they setting a mood, or are they actually just capturing a moment in New York history? Well, as far as I'm concerned, they are capturing a moment. You know, they, they talk about Greenwich Village, you know, and, and how awful it is. Like, what does he say? Like, you tell me. Funny, right? Like, Greenwich Village right now, super gentrified place where, like, a lot of celebrities live. Yes or no, John Cryer? No, it was different. New York was filthy. That is my big problem with a lot of movies that were shot in Los Angeles for New York. Or you know, a lot of things. Yes, a lot yeah. of things that were shot on location on a studio lot. Generally, they didn't make New York dirty enough. Right. Um, and NYPD Blue was one of the first shows that they occasionally shot uh, New York stuff, but they also shot studio stuff. And they would make a real effort. And, and I remember, I think that was on the Fox lot. And I remember going by and seeing them dirtying up the street. And I was like, oh, I feel like I'm home. Uh, <laughs> it smells like <laughs> urine. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, n- no, New York was, 90s was the beginning of the Giuliani era. And New York was just starting to gentrify mm-hmm. at that point. So well, it's also uh, the end of the 80s, which means something yes. if you're a New Yorker there, which is a, sort of coming out of that period where there was the bankruptcy and whole areas of the city were just sort of left abandoned. And it's kind of like Detroit today. Right. Actually, my, my one like little quibble with the beginning of the setup is that the witness, who's the homeless guy, whose name is hilariously Edgar Hoover, <laughs> he looks very clean. Like He's got like a decent yes. teeth. <laughs> he's not so bad looking. And he's able to draw the correlation, you know, between the guy he sees beating up the shop owner. He says he's uh, mean looking. He's got a fancy suit. Mean looking, fancy suit. Like Donald Trump. Just like Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's two Donald Trump references. The guy was wearing a suit, remember? Donald Trump. It's like, oh, God, it, I can't. I, I was looking for a trip back in time. I was looking for some blessed relief 
from what was going on in the world when I was watching these shows, and I did not get it. The more things change, the more they, the stay, more the they stay the same. But John, as, as a fellow as a fellow New Yorker, uh, born and bred, don't you feel like you've known Donald Trump your whole life? And this is just proof that we have, in fact, known Donald Trump our whole lives. Yes, and it is it is frustrating for me, but partially because I feel like the apprentice version of Donald Trump is what America has seen, but I grew up with the other Donald Trump, the guy who, you know, was in favor of executing five innocent young boys who were framed for a, a rape. You know, that's the, the guy I have affection for. Um, that's the, that's, that's <laughs> Uncle Donald. Donald I remember. Oh, it's so nostalgic. <laughs> so, so, you know, so for me, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm saddened that uh, the United States and maybe at some point the world will be living New York's nightmare uh, from the 80s and 90s. But there, there are times when I see people, you know, who, who are, you know, wearing their Make America Great hats. And I just want to grab them and say, oh, I wish you'd been in New York <laughs> in the 80s and 90s. You might change your mind, but whatever. Yeah, well, we're going to cut all that out because half of our listeners are in the basket okay, of deplorables. Okay, great. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> so going back to season one, it's clear that the pacing of this show is completely different than the move it along format that became the Law and Order trademark. Rebecca, agree or disagree? 100% agree. I mean, there was these like very um, sort of lugubrious conversations in the squad room, which, by the way, are stunning because Cragen is in this era of law and order. And Cragen is in the modern era of SVU, of course, no, no longer, but he was up until pretty recently. And it's like a different guy. I know the dialogue is different. By the way, he looks exactly the same. The man doesn't yes, age. Yes, he does. It's amazing. Really, he doesn't. He's obviously he's like, he's like the Benjamin Button of uh, <laughs> of the Law and Order universe. He could have been born old, though. But the... even just the way that he delivers his dialogue, it's it's just extremely different. It's much. It's a little snappy. So fine, great. Be my guest. But when the wheel stops, my guess is we're going to be right back where we were yesterday. A witness who on a great day belongs in a rubber room. In other words, we got zip up because zero. What? The scenes are just a little bit, I don't know. It sort of has He's like kind a of more, a different character he's a completely than, different than an character. SVU, where he's really different. take charge. He's the, a little more... The thoughtfulness is absent. It's just the business of policing. That's kind of what it struck me as, as opposed to these sort of very drama-laden scenes we see now. But also that they, they sort of took their time and kind of like relaxed a little bit in the squad room, although the phone calls are just as short as they are in modern day law and order. Well, it seems now that they're much more comfortable with their exposition. They're, they're not hitting it as hard because they're sort of trusting that the audience will get it. Back then, like at one point, Noth does that. He's in the import-export business, you know, <laughs> meaning that he's in the mafia, uh, which is like the, the nose pushed aside as you were doing, Kevin. <laughs> Obviously, he felt like he had to hit it hard as an actor because he's practically leering into the camera. Right. But now they, they, they move it along faster, assuming that you get it. You know, yeah. yeah. Now we have Craig and, and we've seen Logan before. A lot of people don't remember Max Grevy, George Zunza's uh, George character. George Zunza, so, yes. Yeah. He seemed a little uncomfortable with the enormous amounts of exposition to me. <laughs> but so jolly in his giant, his yes. giant old timey computer, and he was like, "I love this job." Have you? There's yeah. never been a jollier detective <laughs> in the, the Law Santa and Order Claus universe. Of Law and Order. He's a teddy bear. Like when he yes. like a, later in the episodes, when he's like roughing the guy up, or like just does a hint. It's like, what are you going to hug the guy? I mean, he doesn't really <laughs> seem like the kind of person who would rough anyone up. Also, his lovely attitude towards sexual harassment is really great because when they're in the ele <laughs> the elevator together and. And, uh, and Noth's character is making an oddly sexualized overtones at the woman who's standing next to him. Come here, Rolf. Postcard cowboy leather bores me. Nice line, bitch. 
And then he refers to her as bitch and then laughs it off. Yeah. I love that Zunza is like, ha ha, it's hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. In this episode, we have a, hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. Do you recognize Harv Beagle? Harv Beagle? Oh, he's a hey, it's that guy. And the only thing I recognize him from is... Um, He's on, I want to say he was like in like some movie like in the night. Was it like regarding Henry yes. that he was in? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that. But I, I also know that he's been something that we've watched recently and I'm not sure what it was. This is actor Bruce Altman and you probably remember him from Mr. Robot. That's it. That was it. And he has also been on each Law & Order and has a recurring role in Original Recipe as defense attorney Brad Feldman. Hmm. Another guy, we see this all the time. We go, oh, I could just place him. John, I bet when you watch, you kind of go, hey, I know him. I worked on something <laughs> with him. I know that guy, yes. Yeah. It's not yes. just a, it's that guy. It's, oh, craft uh, services. He was like, uh, the, yeah. It's that guy actually know. He took know. the last of the soup. Yeah. It's that guy actually I had know. that with High End Zell, who's on the show, who uh, plays the owner of the, the guy who's buying the cigarettes. Really? Uh, really? Yes, yes. That's uh, High End Zell actually was on an episode of Two and a Half Men with me. Huh. Uh, he's known for his imitation of uh, Cary Grant speaking uh, Yiddish. It's wow. <laughs> uh, have him on the show. It's totally worth it. Now, the smartest thing I think that they did for the audience was to explain this conspiracy of the stone by <laughs> literally drawing it out in chalk <laughs> on yes. a chalkboard. Now, Pulaski swears he knows nothing about the cigarettes. He did, however, admit he was just doing a favor for his old friend Beagle. So Beagle is an accomplice to assault. It gets better. Mr. Zalter says he's too shishi to associate with riffraff like Pilevsky, but it just so happens he has several truckloads of stolen cigarettes in his warehouse. Guess who owns the warehouse? Beagle. So even if Zalter and Pilevsky are telling the truth... The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. But they're washing each other, so it's conspiracy, gentlemen. They could all go away for a long time. It was like an episode of The Wire. I had no idea what was going on, and it wasn't because it was so much sort of above me. It was mostly because so much of the dialogue was things like Craig and saying, we've got zip, bupkis, zero. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, drawing it on the board actually was actually helpful. Helpful, yes, in this context. Well, yeah, I, I had a hard time, too, getting uh, between the mafiosos and the union guys. It was a little diffuse for me. I, I didn't, um, I, I have affection for this episode, but I now see the problems. You know, it, it was one of those things that you remember as a kid well, but now you go, ah. One of my favorite cues was when they were talking to the loading guy outside of Beagle's building, like the stock boy, and he's eating mm -hmm. a hot dog while he's talking to the cops, which of course someone's always doing something else when talking to the cops. But he's yes. basically like, Look, man, you know how hard it is to get work? I keep my eyes closed, I keep my job. What about your ears? Sure. I hear stuff. What kind of stuff? Like guys that talk don't talk for very long. Look, I've seen Godfather 1, 2, and 3. I've seen Godfather 1, 2, and 3. And it's like, it's like, oh, cue for the audience. This is about the mob. <laughs> so was anyone surprised when the mobsters outsmarted our hero, Stone and Robinette? Uh, I was surprised at the way. I did think, oh, gosh, it's double jeopardy. Oh, crap. I, that I did not see coming. So that they were outsmarted. Did not surprise me. And that I knew it was a, a two-episode arc uh, <laughs> helped. 
<laughs> but uh, uh, but no, I, I'll be honest. I that I did not see the way that uh, they were going to do it. The Dandy Don, you mean, as versus the Dapper Don? Is that uh... yes? <laughs> well, you, do you know who Dandy Don was? Right, oh, there was a real Dandy Don as well. Yeah, Dandy Don Meredith, the oh. football player and Monday Night Football announcer. Right, but they were talking about John Gotti, the Dapper Don. When they I know, the Dandy but isn't Don. that clever? They called him the it, Dandy I guess Don. It's clever, I guess. God, I don't know. Rebecca. Anyway, I, I did not see the, the screwing Ben Stone coming. I mean, Beagle's lawyer tried really, really hard to sort of sweet talk Ben into not, you know, offering Beagle up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It did surprise me in the way that it came down also really surprised me. When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Now let's look at the second episode in this two-part series. Uh, We pick it up with Stone and the cops holding a grudge for getting played. They get a wiretap on Masucci's phone and zero in on the Don's brother-in-law, Harvey Beagle. The detectives learn Beagle's been paying off a building inspector to ignore code violations at his rundown slums, including one which might have been John Cryer's first apartment. (laughs) (laughs) They charge Beagle with bribery, which they spin into a RICO charge, hoping he'll turn against his mobbed-up brother-in-law. Now, after an overly complicated plot to pressure the Don... Grievy and Logan learn the way it works as Masucci gives the orders and Beagle calls the hitman. And the surveillance team sees Beagle meet with the hitman, but then he disappears. Beagle's wife tells them where her brother literally has all the bodies buried. (laughs) Surprise alert, it's New Jersey. Surprise! (laughs) Masucci is arraigned, but his sister puts up the million dollars to bail him out, even though he had her husband killed. When we next see the dandy Don go to his favorite restaurant, he gets rubbed out like Pee Wee Herman in a movie theater. That was so complicated. Like every episode of the show you've been able to explain in like three sentences, you did a good job explaining it. I'm not saying you didn't. But this was complicated. Am I wrong? No, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. And the, the yeah, and, and, and that is, uh, you know, a part and parcel of the original. I think the show was meant to have a, a documentary grittiness to it. This episode uh, or that show? Th- no, the, I think it, it, the first season of Law and Order when it was originally envisioned. Yeah. Um, but I think once they realized that the structure worked so well, they realized that they could move it along just as a plot. The story's plot wise. And I think that took some of the sort of grittiness out of it and gave it some more momentum, which is nice. That is the the law and order that we've come to know and love. But I think they were working it out that first season. Well, this episode is unique in all of law and order history because it is the only one that doesn't start with the standard intro. Right. It's mm-hmm. a completely different read. It goes occasionally the criminal justice system can be, <laughs> yes, twisted, can be twisted and manipulated, and manipulated by, the very, by the very people it's meant to punish. This is one of those cases. What started as an assault on a Russian candy store owner mushroomed into an investigation of Manhattan's most powerful crime family. These are some of the players. 
then it goes on and, and on yes. and on. Our, our son was watching the episode with us, and he was like, this is like one of those things people are translating for the blind. Like, it's just <laughs> like 10 minutes to the episode, the voiceover guy is still like, that's Ben Stone. He's walking to work, drinking a coffee right now. It was so <laughs> epically long, that voiceover. It was crazy. You you really could have just watched episode two and picked up right where you <laughs> left off. Yeah, yeah. My favorite scene is in the car where Logan is talking about the girl with the gecko and the cockroaches. The gecko. Oh, the gecko. Yes. Gecko something else, right? <laughs> yes, Free plug. So the girl with the gecko <laughs> and the cockroaches. I wake up to the sound of barking. This one has a dog? I wish. I ask her what's going on. She says cockroaches. Cockroaches that bark? <laughs> That's what I said. She says the exterminator was a bus, so she bought a gecko. It's a lizard. It's some kind of gila monster from Brazil or something. And it eats roaches? Down to the last drop. Barks when it's hungry. (laughs) And again, this just seems like it's another snapshot of New York 1990. Like you would Again, not you would not hear yeah. that on SVU today, right? No, because they're a machine on SVU now. You know, they're moving on to the next plot point. They're not just sitting around gabbing a, a moment and giving you a snapshot. They don't do that anymore. You can see that the show was envisioned as something a little bit different than what it ended up becoming. But what really struck me about that whole conversation wasn't the cockroach and the gecko part. It was Logan bragging about his like sexual conquests in the car. And you're right. That is not something that we see anymore. Like the exposition, the sort of personal stuff. And even though SVU is so laden with personal stories, the exposition between characters is as quick as like a wink and a nod and then boom, done. And that was really a protracted little scene. And then there was all that stuff with the the woman doing the wiretap, that Mm -hmm. other cop team who was Mm -hmm. awesome. That exposition was also great. They kept betting on what people are going to order to eat. Yes, it was great. (laughs) This is madness. It's crazy. And by the way, that cockroaches aren't what you think of when you think of New York City is amazing to me. I know, me too. They're the wildlife. They They are the fauna. Uh, you know, there's, Cockroaches there's, and rats. The, the, the flora is those tiny little trees that are fighting through the cracks in the <laughs> sidewalks. And the fauna is cockroaches. And now they fly, by the way, because the um, palmetto bugs have migrated up from Florida. So you have these things we used to call water bugs, which are huge cockroaches that fly. <laughs> Fly. I was going to say that f- fly. You could say that. Myself. Yeah. I can say <laughs> that on this podcast. No, of course. No. Yeah. yeah. This okay. is a podcast. Come on, John Pryor. Swear. Fly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this and it is... is so unnerving. So, did you uh, ever have a bearded gecko when you were living in New York? I did not. A, bar, a barking gecko. It was a barking gecko. Barking a, be- gecko. a bearded gecko sounds like something filthy. You're thinking of the bearded <laughs> dragon. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> That's right. That's a sex move. I'm doing That's right. Move. We also see Bitch. some. <laughs> Sorry, that that really threw me. Holster you know, it, I just love that he laughed it off. You know? <laughs> Leather bores me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we also get to see someone before they were famous. Before they were famous. Christine Baranski. Baranski. Yes. Plays Masucci's sister and Beagle's wife. Of course, Christine got her big break as Trixie Fontaine in Speed Racer 10. <laughs> no, she did not. Uh, actually, her breakout role was the bitchy friend Marianne and Sybil. And as uh, Diane Lockhart on The Good Wife, also starring whom? Chris Knopf. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. John, did you guys uh, share a parking space at CBS? Or were you in the same parking lot or anything like that? With Baranski? Yeah, you ever see her? Uh, I have seen her a few times. She actually came to the, the pilot shoot of Two and a Half Men because Chuck Lorre actually produced Sybil. 
Ah, uh, and it was lovely to see. Uh, you know, it was a, a huge gesture of support. She's in the audience. It's like, oh my god, that's Christy Baranski. <laughs> she was on Law and Order that first season. Play- no, oh, that that's is not what you remember. Yes, that's not how I remember. What's her. so funny is that you know when I was watching these episodes, I just kept even though she was Mrs. Beagle or whatever her name was, like I just think of her as Baranski, and I'm like, oh, the Baranski says this, Baranski says that. And the thing about this TV appearance by Christine Baranski, obviously, I mean, she was a stage actress before, right, John? Am I? Yeah. And it's don't you think it's obvious in this episode? <laughs> she was a stage actress before <laughs> a lot of those stage actor affectations like she's like smoldering looks smoldering the, looks the icy demeanor you know what you're doing mr stone uh, yes mrs beagle i am attempting to put your brother in prison by getting my husband killed because that's what you're setting in motion sort of line delivery <laughs> that doesn't exist like among seasoned television actors which now she clearly is was all present in this episode did you have habits like that john that you had a shake when you went from broadway to film Yes, uh, you uh, you project a little too much, you know, you enunciate probably more than you have to. But, you know, it's funny is when you're shooting stuff, it seems like it's supposed to be more real. But actually, there's more on stage. You at least get the continuity of doing a scene mm-hmm. when you're shooting. The hard part wow. is you've actually got a much more constrained parameters of doing things like uh, you, you have to hit a very specific mark because otherwise the lighting's totally screwed and the focus puller can't focus on your face and they expect much more realism but oddly being on stage is a much more realistic scenario right one more cameo of note in the role of arraignment judge Kleinman it's David Cryer what? Who's that guy? That's that's the father of John Cryer. What? Your dad was the, on this episode. In the pivotal role of arraignment judge. Uh, <laughs> because it, had he not arraigned them in that fashion, the whole thing would have fell apart. That's and enough, Mr. LeClaire. Bail is set at $100,000, cash or bond. Now, is, is, is it true your dad left Harvard Law to play Curly in Oklahoma at the Polka Dot Playhouse in Bridgeport, Connecticut? <laughs> yes, 100% true. Those are the kind of life choices that informed my uh, <laughs> my life. Uh, no, that's not true. He actually went to divinity school, though, uh, at Yale Divinity School. So there. Ah. Fancy man. Are you telling me the Internet's wrong about that? <laughs> I think the Internet is wrong about that. But your father was uh, in Broadway musicals, and he was also a regular on As the World Turns. Yes, As the World Twirls. My favorite he was, of all uh, time. Uh, he was an organized crime boss on that show. Oh. You know, because I thought it was kind of funny the way the camera swung and framed him up to do that line. The one line. It seemed, yeah, it seemed very conspicuous. It was kind of like when Larry Flint played the judge that sentenced Larry Flint in The People <laughs> versus Larry Flint. <laughs> it was like, you're supposed to know who this is. And I guess if you had been a soap opera fan, you would have been like, hey, it's that guy. Right. It would have been a little loaded. Like, whoa, things are going to pop now. As <laughs> the world turns, another New York-based soap. Obviously, it's no longer on the air. As the world turns, by the way, was a kick-ass soap. It was a great, well-written soap with lots of great actors, many of whom also populate the Law and Order universe, like Tamara Tooney, who plays the M.E. on SVU for many, 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 many years. Yeah. The yeah. M.E. on SVU ASAP. Exactly. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, yes. Tamara, by the way, is an old friend of my mom's. Uh, my mom is an actress as well. Um, but y- yes, thank goodness for the Law and Order franchises and soap operas because they were the gainful employment for generations of New York actors. Was, did you ever like turn on like your dad's soap and like see him getting it on with the maid and be like really confused or <laughs> nothing like he, that happened? 
He did not do a lot of getting it on on that show that I recall. I didn't watch a lot of soaps at that time when he was on. I got into them later. Like my favorite was during the writer's strike because then they had to let the PAs write the shows. (laughs) And there was this wonderful period where shit got crazy on all the soaps (laughs) because none of them had paid writers. Uh, It was great. Uh, So that's when I got into them. But I think my dad was had already moved on to doing like Evita or something. Give your dad a letter grade for his performance in this episode of Law & Order. Uh, I'll give him an A-, you know. Uh-huh. He, he had about four lines. Uh, he moved it along. He arranged them properly. <laughs> um, I think there was a very firm gavel, not yes. a very weak gavel, yeah. But, uh, no, I love my dad. I can't be, can't be critical. unbiased about this. I love my dad. Of course I, you do. Well, what's funny is he tends to get parts that are kind of stoic and serious. That's just, you know, what he's been cast mm-hmm. at. And, of course, he's hilarious. Ah. So I don't get why that is, but that's been his bread and butter for a while. And the man can sing. Oh, my God. Absolutely beautiful singer. And he's still actually singing with the uh, New Jersey uh, Choral Society. And he was in Evita? Is that what you said? He was in Evita on Broadway for a long <sighs> time. He took over for Bob Gunton wow. after he left. I actually spent a lot of time backstage at Evita as a kid, and uh, it was great. He was in 1776. He did a lot of lot of shows. He was obviously underutilized in this episode <laughs> really of Law underutilized. Order. Really underutilized. Yes. The singing well, judge? I mean, that would have been <laughs> epic. That's like Not only are rock. you merely jailed, you're really most sincerely jailed. Okay. <laughs> uh, so let's go back to the episode. Uh, they finally go and find the bodies in New Jersey, which, again, I'm sure the Chamber of Commerce loved <laughs> that scene. By the way, nice job, crime guys, preserving the scene. What, reaching into the ground yes. and pulling the body out? Sticking with, with their hands. <laughs> there were so many funny, weird like moments like that in this show, like when they were looking at the footage in the prison of the closed circuit security footage and there was like a pan shot across the yard. Yes, it was beautifully (laughs) shot. It was like Martin Scorsese. I know. Uh, (laughs) Who's in that tower running that camera? (laughs) So many weird little things that definitely took you out of the texture, like details that I don't think they let fall to the wayside these days now that the show is super polished. On the one hand, this is much grittier. On the other hand, it's just not as well produced as like the modern TV. And John, with all of your experience now on addendum and your fascination with all things true crime, you must have been looking at those cops digging the body out with their bare hands going, way to screw that investigation. (laughs) Yes, yeah, it was, uh, I was like, that's going to help in court. Put the hat on him again. Yeah, that was a good call, yeah. It's all I can do not to watch Law & Order and go, Brady violation! (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we also got Rico in this episode, which was fun, and we got the Giuliani reference without saying the name. What was it, our our new favorite state's attorney? U.S. District Attorney, yeah, yeah. Rico is his favorite crime. That was Giuliani they were talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. was, was all these little like moments like that. But yeah, sticking the arms into the ground, pulling the body up by the underarms, not necessarily the best way to preserve a crime scene. Now, this, <laughs> this episode is called The Torrents of Greed, and greed is a recurring theme. You've got greedy gangsters, greedy civil servants, greedy limo drivers, greedy jailhouse informants. Even Stone gets greedy, ignoring the low-level guys trying to nail the big boss. That's right. So doesn't greed do everybody in in this episode? Yes, now that you mention it. I, I'm so embarrassed. I didn't notice that. I was like, wow, okay. Um, you, you blew my mind, Kevin. Does it do Baranski in, though? Doesn't do Baranski in. She ends up fine, just kind of fine at the end, right? Oh, you're well, right. Oh, but yeah. she gave a million dollars away. No, she got it back. Oh, yeah, Wait, when he's dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> they say now that he's dead, she'll get the bail money back. You're right. Yeah, Green yeah. Pays. That totally controverts the whole message. Yeah, I guess that greed is good. Yeah, <laughs> that was a whole other movie, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's now time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it? You think you know who did it? But you don't know who did it. You don't know. This episode was inspired by the life of feared mafioso John Gotti. He was the most violent member of New York's Gambino crime family. Gotti feared the boss, Paul Castellano, was going to have him whacked. So Gotti struck first. In 1985, he had Castellano knocked off as he walked into his favorite restaurant. Gotti took over the Gambinos, sparking a mob war among the other New York families. In public, Gotti was always chipper with the press, giving them brilliant quotes. They dubbed him the Dapper Don, always sharply dressed in an expensive camel hair coat. The FBI was not as enamoured with him. Gotti was arrested, tried and acquitted three separate times thanks to jury tampering and witness intimidation. The press gave him a new nickname, the Teflon Don, because nothing could stick to him. More than a year after this episode aired, Gotti was finally convicted on murder and racketeering charges when Sammy, the bull, Gravano, turned state's witness. His arrest led to the downfall in prominence of the Italian mob in New York. John Gotti died in prison from throat cancer in 2002. So this episode is not subtle in making a fictionalized version of John Gotti. <laughs> I didn't have to grow up in New York to know, hey, that's John Gotti. Well, yeah. it was also just the shoulder pads. Uh, <laughs> the just... Just the 80s shoulder pads were the total giveaway. They were, as was the big Tudor-style home in Queens, which is very similar, by the way, to the compound on which John Gotti resided. I know this being a Long Islander. Like, photos of John Gotti's family compound were on the news all the time when I was growing up. This stuff, for me, is like canon for my teens. But, John, you know, for those of us who didn't grow up in New York City or live in New York City in the 80s and 90s, it's hard to believe... The press really made a celebrity out of a guy that everybody knew to be a violent criminal. Was he, like, uh, really a tabloid hero? He was beloved. In Brooklyn, he used to do a huge fireworks show, uh, a completely illegal fireworks show. (laughs) And it's not like the cops could ignore it and not notice that there's literally fireworks going off. Um, But he was beloved. New York is an interesting cultural melange. Mm. Yes, I said that. Um, You've been dying to say that. You know, there's a certain affection for its underside, even among the people who suffer from it. It's very strange. Some people like the more colorful aspects of its history. One of the things that was a rational expectation at that time that is no longer, um, partially thanks to Giuliani, was you expected an enormous amount of corruption. Uh, You expected if you had a business, if you were going to be dealing with anything, if you were going to try to get anything done with the city government, there was going to be corruption. That Mm -hmm. was just... You know, that was how everybody felt. So you felt like he was a guy who was just taking advantage of it. You know, that's one of the reasons that another Teflon Don, Donald Trump, has been, you know, sort of immune to a lot of the scandals that surround him is people sort of expect that if you're going to become a billionaire, you got to break some eggs. Grease the skids. To paraphrase uh, <laughs> the Stalin. Joker. Now, when this episode aired, Gotti was a free man. How crazy is that when you look back? Oh, there was stuff about him in pop culture all the time. To me, it's all not crazy yeah. at all. Yeah, he was definitely like... 
he would make appearances. He was a personality. Like John Gotti would show <laughs> up to these Columbus Day parades. Like that, he was a personality, right, John? Oh, absolutely. If you would go to a restaurant, you'd see the pictures of the celebs on the wall, mm-hmm. and you know, and there's John Gotti. Sardis, uh, John Gotti. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it was absolutely true. Just they were. They were mobsters. They were mobsters. <laughs> they, were, they were mobsters. <laughs> right, but you know what? <laughs> they were killing people. Kind of looking at like the, the Whitey Bulger persona. By the way, and I never heard of Whitey Bulger ever growing up. I heard of Whitey Bulger like 15 uh-huh. years ago when I started seeing news reports well, about the search for him. But the New York Reporters mobsters- didn't follow Whitey Bulger around at dinner time and exactly. ask him- but in New York, I just find that as as like a quintessential and only a New York thing. I don't, in L.A. or Chicago, I, I don't see that happening. That's also where the media lives is in yeah. New York. We know yes. that. We like it. Like 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 we know when there's like a horrible storm that happens in New York, it's going to get a hell of a lot of play on the Today Show. Yeah. We know that. Ten billion people get wiped out in a hurricane, and it comes after Brangelina. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the 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 media eyes and ears of America are still New York and Los Angeles. There are moments where I remember during the the height of the Britney Spears craziness when there was like three helicopters hovering at night over my neighborhood in Studio City, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I guess we're in the center of the world," you know, <laughs> you know, because there's three helicopters trying to see where Britney Spears is going to the drugstore. You were know, you positive I, I, they weren't there for you. I'm well, not 100%. Not He's positive. a goody-goody. We know he wasn't there. They uh, they're waiting that. to get something on you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's going to do it for us. I want to thank you to our special guest, John Cryer. John, where can listeners follow you online if they want to harass you? I am only on the Twitter. I am on uh, at Mr. John Cryer. I don't do Facebook. If, if you see me on Facebook, it's a liar. <laughs> uh, if those Russian hackers. S- yes, yeah, Snapchat, that ain't me. Instagram, there is me, but I'm so boring on Instagram. I have like a picture of my backyard. (laughs) So don't even bother on Instagram. And Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you? They can follow me at Reb Lavoie. I'm the one obsessively tweeting to John Cryer all the time. (laughs) And they can also follow me at Reb Lavoie on Instagram. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet at us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader is Cy Freider. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to see what episodes we'll be talking about, go to lawandorderpodcast.com, then check your local listings. We'll see you in two weeks. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Do you like true crime or mystery podcasts, movies, and TV shows? Check out Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. With the help of an ensemble cast of voice actors, follow hosts Wendy and Carter as they take you on an entertaining journey through real crime scenes and attempt to solve the case. Listen now on your favorite podcast directory or app or by visiting parcast.com slash unsolved. That's spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unsolved. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. 
Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.